Hello and welcome to the Culturefile debate, which is this morning coming to you from the very first Beta Digital Arts Festival at the Digital Hub in Dublin's Liberties. We've convened here in front of a live audience for the finale, or at least the end, of a weekend of performances, screenings, exhibitions, workshops, lanyards and panels. And I'd hazard a guess that not a single one of those went by without the mention of two letters that have cast a pointy shadow over 2023. AI. Doll E became fully public just over a year ago. And since then, AI has gotten everywhere. And like hot honey, Implausibly, suddenly, nothing is any good until it's dunked in the stuff. And like hot honey, it took only a few weeks before it smooshed from exciting into vaguely troubling. And we thought we'd bear witness to the smoosh here with a small ritual, a reading from Peter Power to get us started today, one of the creators of Dwelling, a fascinating digital spectacle. Who's seen Dwelling? just about everybody. A fascinating digital spectacle seen as part of the festival that we'll hear much more about in a few minutes. But first, Peter, would you introduce what you're uh, going to perform to us today as the ritual? Yes, good morning, everyone. I'm going to read you one of the main texts from the project uh, that was an inspiration for one of the acts of the work, and I suppose uh, the entirety of the work. But um, this part was uh, very much focused on the first act, it was sung by the soprano Emma Nash and was embedded into a sound design uh, over the first scene of the work. It's titled Bound and Bonded. I am mainly nothing, air and energy, bound and bonded by forces unanswerable to the who of me. I will eventually come apart, blister and boil and rot back into the ground, shattered by my own implausibility. There is so little time, there is so much time. Leaning up and awake, stiff already, rigid rigor mortis, the body preparing to be undone. It knows its outcome, the slow progression towards stillness. An irredeemable insomniac, I sit unwillingly, my subconscious mind breaching like a black whale. To sleep is to prepare to die, to practice a little death, to let go of being and knowing and return to the ever before and ever after. I will be gone for so long, longer than this gathered self could ever matter, spending time on the irrelevancies, washing dishes, scrolling screens, tying shoes, making marks, the argument, the honor, the noble and the commitments, the failing, the successes, the trying to sleep, the walking, the listening. I will be obliterated, not just forgotten, for there is energy in forgetting. I will not be I, I will be a heat death. Nothing matters, nothing can matter, nothing is matter. Everything is between. Thank you. 
Thank you very much, Peter. I was particularly struck by the line there, shattered by my own implausibility, mainly because I've been thinking a lot about the word plausible and its relation to AI. Maybe what we see in the rise of large language models feels confrontational, not because it promises to supersede us and our imaginary unique subjectivity, but because it might reveal how plausibility, the likelihood that my words are the sort of words someone like me would say in these circumstances, is at the heart of how we express ourselves, and that maybe art, the other stuff, is powered by the implausible. And that's only the theoretical threat. The real here and now threat is the concentration of power currently emerging in a few players, a concentration that no amount of Bletchley summits or executive orders even aims to constrain. And then there's the replacement theory of the digital kind, which hovers around Peter's reading. It's so far from a theoretical concern that actors are currently striking for fear that their voices and likenesses will be incarcerated and forced to work without pay. It's as if the makers of the jacquard looms planned to use the bones of weavers to build their replacements. The old Hollywood saw that they can kill you but they can't eat you is being sunset. Is it any wonder we're prepared to throw these wonderful toys out of the pram? Can we, should we, re-enchant our relationship with AI? Here to generate some plausible words, we have our panel. Joanna Walsh. Hi, Joanna. Joanna is a writer on paper and on screens and a collaborator with AIs, particularly in her project Miscommunication, which was nourished on the prison letters of Constance Markovich, among other things. Hi, Joanna. Hello. Leon Butler is an artist designer who, along with Peter Power, who was reading for us there, created Dwelling, an enchanting dystopia in dance and projected image, which has been performed as part of the festival. He also co-designed, along with some machine learning, tools, the festival logo. Hello, Leon. Yeah. And finally, we have Jennifer O'Mara, who's a writer and academic at TCD, whose research interests include everything from the sounds of true crime podcasts to the touching points of film and digital media. Hi, Jennifer. Hi. So I wanted to start with a, a question for everybody, and I just wanted to get a quick run around on how you feel about this. Uh, where are we on hot, hot honey and AI? So on this day in late 2023, do you think you've overestimated or underestimated the significance of AI during this significant year? Uh, Joanna, would you start? This is a very difficult place to start. It's like a massive question. I think part of the problem with talking about AI is asking questions that are too big. Um, and first, I'd like to split this down into uses of AI in art, which is what we're you know, all representing, and um, other uses such as politics, journalism. Um, obviously, many of the uses there are very worrying. I would like to think that it can be used creatively and fruitfully um, by artists, and I would like to see more artists and writers involved in the creation of AI voluntarily and not through having their works pirated. Uh, so, you know, yes, I think we need more in, in the, the arts realm, we actually need a, a kind of larger involvement, not a smaller involvement between artists and AI. Jennifer. Yeah, so I think it goes down to, at the moment, the use of the term AI. It, AI has become mm. something of a catch-all kind of term. Um, in some cases for processes that would have been described you know, in different ways um, in earlier years. Um, and uh, like Joanna, I think there's this distinction in terms of the kinds of uses and the value of those uses. So 
Um, again, I see so much potential in terms of using it as a kind of experimental tool or form um, in line with um, some earlier media practices, uh, particularly in terms of screen media. There's always been this dependence on um, different technologies, whether it was the coming of sound to film, the, color, the coming of color, um, and then more recent practices around things like glitch works, database cinema, et cetera, many of which are really dependent on different kinds of software uh, and kind of using um, prompts and experimentation to generate interesting aesthetic works, um, in some cases with a kind of reflexive commentary. Um, and I think there's so much um, value there that maybe it's being underestimated in terms of how it might be used creative, creatively, um, rather than just simply kind of displacing creative workers potentially, or journalists, or writers, etc. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think fear is 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 part of the the difficulty in in uh, assessing. Leon, I think like AI was just machine learning last year, wasn't it? We just kind of changed change the name of it, as you say, but like. I think we kind of use art and artists to... You, you tend to use the term machine learning a lot more than AI. That's, that's you know, it's, 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 it's what it is. You know, we just kind of changed the name and it became a buzzword and it got into like pitch decks and Silicon Valley. And so now you have to have like AI. Like if I see another biog of someone who's like, I use AI creatively in my work, I'm going like, what, do you? You know, it's like, it's, it, it's just something that people, people say right now. But like, it, like with artists and any new technology, we kind of, hope that they'll go and break it and do something strange with it. And like, whenever I'm using a tool, I kind of go, you know, it's like from one to 10, I try and turn it up to 100 and see what it does and see where the edges are and then bring it back and go, okay, well that's, wait, that didn't work. And they're going, you know, you shouldn't use it like that. It's like, but well, that's where the interest is. And that's the kind of lens that we use to kind of, to open it, you know? That's exactly what I wanted to, to kind of get to because I think in your project in Dwelling and Joanna's project, Miscommunication, there's sort of two ends of that of the year in that when you, Joanna, started using the, the, um, the generative AI to kind of create, you were using a slightly clunkier version and maybe like I think the, the composer Jennifer Walsh has said how what's interesting about AI is the way it breaks things and kind of disrupts rather than you know, looking for a, a smoother and smoother experience, which is what subsequent generations of ChatGTP have, uh, have maybe offered. Do you find the, the newer versions of the tools less promising in some ways? Well, I created Miscommunication uh, based on a proposal to the Markovich Award, which I won in 2020, which was wonderful to be possibly the first um, generative text project ever to be backed by the Irish Arts Council. And uh, what was available then was GPT-3 had was just coming in, GPT-2 was available, um, it was open source, you could get a lot of uh, programs on GitHub that played around with it, which I went to look at um, in creating miscommunication. And creating the AI, which um, I won't describe how I did because I'm not a very good coder, it was, um, it was, it was difficult and it's very clunky and I, I like to incorporate that kind of that human element of learning and, um, and, and, and mistakes in a, uh, in a positive way into my work. Uh, but by the time I had created it, um, I found that I could, as is normal with, um, with AI chatbots, I could turn something called the temperature up or down, uh, which would create predictive text, which was either more normal, um, more like the kind of the previous token, um, in the, in the text, um, which 
often led to very boring responses. Or you could turn it up to um, a higher temperature, which often made them very fantastic and neonagistic. And I found that the temperature I liked sounded quite human, but a little bit off. Um, that was the kind of a little sweet spot for me. I noticed, I mean, I thought there was something amazing when you demoed it uh, yesterday. Somebody suggested that you use as a, a sort of seed or a prompt um, what's, what is a painful experience or to discuss a painful experience. And the chat uh, came back talking about painting. And so obviously, like, what had been recognised was the, the uh, letters of, of yeah. pain and painting, which is a, a very non-human response to the words pain and painting, but, like, quite productive. Yeah, it's almost like the kind of flattening that took place in, in things like modernism, cubism, um, abstract um, art in the 20th century. There's this kind of grabbing of an experience by, I don't know, by its edges, by looking at it from a different angle. So that kind of... And it's also quite a lot like um, experimental linguistic uh, practices uh, from surrealism through Ulipo and certainly... I'm very interested in those kind of um, those 20th century aleatory uh, writing practices, which completely existed before AI, but we're doing some very similar things. Leon, I, I think of uh, dwelling as like at the other end of the spectrum in that there is a, a strong degree of technical mastery is sort of quite foregrounded. You smile there as though maybe that's not a compliment. Well, we tried to make the technology as not seen as possible, even though it's quite grounded. We wanted it to be like an embodied experience as opposed to uh, something that was uh, technology driven. Um, obviously, there is a large screen, there is projection, there is uh, tracking cameras and different things that happen. W with the technology, we wanted it to always serve the story. It came back to, we didn't want to get, you know, going like, oh, that looks great, we're doing this, just because, you know, it's a new technology or something. If it didn't serve the story, it was just thrown out straight away. So it was always technology serving a story element or some part of the audience experience. So we talked a lot about well, how does that make the audience feel there? Does it serve the story with those parts? So it is very easy to get overawed by, by technology. I think Peter called it demoitis. We get demoitis looking at something on the screen going like, that's brilliant, I want to do this. And then going like, actually, it's not serving the story. Let's not use it, you know, so it's trying to be brave with that as well. Jennifer, um, it's something that happens in dwellings, and, and, and I think it's quite common to a lot of work in the area, is that, you know, even though the attempt is to talk about human experience, it ends up being a way to help us sense the technology and, and experience the technology. And, and I wonder, are you feeling the, uh, a movement away from that? That is the, the, We were talking about quantum computing in another session and, and saying, well, could quantum computing start to be about something other than quantum computing? And I wonder how much we're beginning to, you know, that sensing the technology is not the only uh, affordance of making work in this area. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting in terms of how quickly um, some of these models, particularly the generative ones, are developing in terms of them releasing, you know, subsequent versions that are aimed often more at um, uh, reality, so to speak, rather than some of the more flawed early versions. And I think um, I was really fascinated when Dali Mini came out um, and thinking about, um, like Joanna said, in terms of the earlier reference points in visual culture and how some how Dali Mini really brought to mind to me um, surrealist um, properties, things like body horror, where the flaws in, in the technology were creating these um, 
these creations that in the past it would have taken you know, special effects and uh, extensive costuming or prosthetics in order to create you know, the kind of the asymmetry of the faces or the, the merging of kind of human and, uh, human and objects. Um, so I think um, with subsequent versions, they are more realist, so to speak, in terms of you know, it's harder to uh, uh, distinguish them maybe from, say, photorealism or you know, pictures or you know, live footage that's been captured. Um, but I think that awareness of the technology, it's there for so, it, with so much of screen media, even if you think about practices like lip sync, which again is a really popular in terms of reality TV, in terms of online media, TikTok, etc which draws attention to the fact that you know, the sound and image tracks can be recorded separately. So again, you're being made aware of that through these media practices that take advantage of that um, disjunction between what we, he what we hear and what we see. And I think some of the, the AI media is doing the same thing. Um, so you're aware of the technology and it, it gives a kind of uncanny effect, I think, often. You know, it's an, a lot of questions around kind of humanist use of technologies um, and technology can come back to that kind of what's, what's experience is uncanny for us as humans when we know there's sort of a technological mediation um, taking place but as well. I find strange that like with all the technologies, they're going like, it's getting really real, isn't it? Like when we're making like VR work, they're like, what if we make this room in VR? It's like, well, reality is really real. We can, we can, we, we can, we can make other things. There's other things you can make. It's not like trying to recreate it's like, I talk a lot with artists and they're like, what if we had this room where you saw yourself in a mirror? It's just like, you can see yourself in a mirror in real life. Why don't we have like a completely different world that you can imagine? So like, they go like, oh, Dali's getting really real now, isn't it? It's like, yeah, taking a photo of someone's really real. It's not the high watermark. Like there's other ways to use it to create other works and people have to kind of look at it and kind of use it. Like Kaylin, who's here, is training a chair to walk at the moment. <laughs> It's, it, it, he's using reinforced AI to make a chair walk. That's crazy and funny and really interesting to me. And it's way more interesting than going like, I've made a human walk. It's just like, yeah, I've seen people walk down the street every day of the week, you know. Never seen a, a chair walk though. That's gonna be like, you know, so like, I think this kind of push towards like, it's really real or it's, it's, it's you know, uncanny valley. It's going to be replacing us just like, there's, there's other ways to use it, guys. It's a lens to look at different spaces. And even like with the, with the typeface I, I, I made for beta, it was like training an AI to draw type. And I, I like made typefaces where I draw the parts and I was going like, I would never ever do that. So I like fed it every typeface in my computer and I just trained it and it kind of churned away and it started making weird parts. And I was going like, this is kind of strange. And then I, I cleaned the, the training set and Ashton goes, yeah, it's weird. It's not weird enough, though. And I was, like, I, was like, I was like, that might have been. So I put in a load of glyphs and windings and different things that were there. And then it got really weird. And then Ashton was like, love it. Let's keep that. <laughs> so we got like this weird animation of it where it's kind of trying to be right, but kind of not right. And it's like spaces that you wouldn't necessarily go to. And that's, that's actually what's interesting. It's not like going like, it's really real for me. What we think of um, as real in technological representation changes a lot as well. I um, think back to the kind of very early filmmaking where in France um, an audience panicked when they saw a short film of a railway train that seemed to be driving towards them through the screen. And of course, like when we look at an old black and white film, we don't think of it as very realistic uh, because it's quite kind of grainy, it's black and white for a start, it's flat. Um, 
And yet, these people were, concer were concerned that this looked so real to them, they thought that it could harm them. And I think, you know, we're going to be looking back at current technology in 50 years and thinking, why did people think that was so real? Because it's obviously not. It's obviously an aesthetic product. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And I think so much of the, the uses in terms of generative art and generative media, um, it's all about often the aesthetic mimicry. Um, and there's much less of a focus on narrative and you know, the actual intentionality, which I suppose is something that is often what distinguishes you know, um, the child's scribble from the artist's you know, uh, kind of experimental um, approach. And uh, you know, that it comes down to the intentionality and what's the thinking behind it and the aim behind it and the kind of the reflexiveness. And at the moment, there's a really interesting project being planned by uh, Gothenburg Film Festival for next January or February, where they're they're doing they're calling it another persona and they're reworking uh, Ingrid, Ingrid Bergman's film Persona, which is about you know the kind of the merging of two women and they're replacing one of the women with uh, a kind of contemporary Swedish actress and. So again, th thinking about how to use the technology to kind of do something really interesting that already fits within, in that case, an existing media work and to kind of rethink it through the tools of today. Yeah, and I think that sort of uh, relates to this idea of craft that I wanted to talk to a little bit about because there, there is sort of this idea um, in, in, the, in the algo scene that there is something called craft which we sort of oppose to this creativity that we're talking about and that, that somehow they're distinct. And Joanna, you've been writing about this a little bit. You kind of um, have foregrounded the idea that like when you're working with an AI and the craft aspect of what you're doing is quite, in, is quite important and rather than maybe the polish or the technical superiority. Well, craft means a lot of different things here. I mean, you know, craft can just mean a practice which actually does reach an extremely high technical level, and that's often how it's separated from art, because, um, you know, art has is described as something which sort of embeds some sort of um, critique or um, idea, whereas craft has been uh, cursed as something which just makes the, the, the highest technical um, version of a traditional practice. Of course, craft itself does use technology. You know, people re weave rugs um, on a loom, um, and you know, sometimes some of them re weave craft rugs on mechanical looms, and some of them weave craft rugs on hand looms. The kind of idea of craft is itself very unstable, and of course, there's an there's an extent to which we're all situated as as artisans now um, because of the existence of AI. You know, my craft is, is craft in the kind of sense of just not being very good at it. Um, and I like, I like <laughs> integrating this amateurism into my use of these tools because I like part of the, the, the thing being about sort of a human encountering these tools and trying to, as, as Leon said, uh, you know, trying to kind of see what you can do with them, which might be pushing them to the, the height of their capabilities or beyond, or might be just sort of fumbling around with them, which is a lot of what I do. But, but sometimes people who know how to use the tools are people who like write the things, will use it in, 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 in a set way, because they go like, well, this is the intention of the bounds It's like, well, what, what, what if we use it in a different way, or we kind of intentionally move it move another way? And like, as artists, we often kind of hijack tools, you know, to, to go like, okay, this intention of this was something for commerce and we're going to take it and do something interesting with it. Like, in, I, I made a project in, in Lafayette where I used surveillance cameras that were... Um, <coughs> they didn't have passwords on them, so I kind of accessed them uh, and, and put them into my installation. Um, and it was just like 
could I afford to maybe put cameras in cities around the world? Not really. But I can kind of hack into people's cameras and put them on screen and installation, then use machine learning uh, to, to, to make some music with them. So, you know, that wasn't the intention of people putting those cameras there or the people who made the machine learning software, th things that I did. But it was like looking at those and using them and kind of harnessing their powers for, for, for what I wanted to do. But it was also turning a lens on the technologies uh, for people to encounter. And people look at it and they go, I didn't realize that maybe that was going on. It's a, it's, it's a much easier way for an audience to access things. And, you know, w w with your piece, you know, they're, 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 people are going like, oh, so this is a, a language model speaking to me. This is so easy to encounter rather than something that oftentimes, like if there's a paper released about it, if it's academic, it's very dense, it's very hard to digest. And that's why, like, Ashing putting on this festival has, like, allowed a lot of people into these technology things. And they're having side conversations going like, I didn't realize this was a thing. Oh, that's how that's used. That's a large language model. That's AI. And it just allows people to have conversations around. I think, like, as artists, it's really important that we turn that lens back on people and go, this is how you access it. This is what it is. It's not yeah. always a huge deal. It's actually something that you can kind of use for your own purposes and have fun with. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it seems slightly banal to say, but the question it raised for me was kind of rights issues, which is something we, we haven't really talked about at all. Maybe, uh, Jennifer, you, you'd say something about that. We um, talked on the programme to um, Andreas Guadamas before, and he was talking about this notion that it would be very difficult to imagine that authorship could be assigned to anything non-human. But that, felt, that feels like six months ago that that, uh, that was uh, a good fact. And now that feels more susceptible or, or fragile. Yeah, I think the question of authorship and um, sort of rights issues is, is going to prove to be really central to some of this, particularly in, in relation to things like the film industry, um, you know, where there are those, as you mentioned at the start, there's the strikes taking place. Um, there's also a lot of questions um, in terms of kind of um, major studios, the question of copyrights and if they use AI-generated tools, um, that it makes it harder or impossible to copyright because they don't own it the same way they would have um, other forms of kind of recorded content. Um, and in many ways, I think with things like actors and writers and, and their fears around how their work would be displaced or around um, uh, how previous performances, for example, or you know, recordings of them could be reused. And it's a magnification, I think, of issues we've already been seeing for many years with, with actors in particular, you know, female actresses, where they've often been subject to deep fakes. They've been, um, you know, their bodies have been turned into pornography or you know, their face has been um, supplanted onto another performer and all of these questions. And the same with um, voice technologies. Um, in some cases, you have computer animated films or films that raise questions around the kind of the ethics of uh, human computer relationships where uh, you don't see a perf female performer, you just hear her, you know, it's the voice that's being retained but the body that's being replaced. And there's a really interesting film called The Congress. Um, recommend um, people watch it if you're interested in these things made by Ari Fulman and which gets at that question of actors' rights to themselves and the kind of the recording of it and the, the potential for them to not be able to control how they appear in things. And so I think looking at these kind of legal questions is really important. I think a lot of them will play out in the kind of mainstream media um, for that reason. But a lot of these um, rights issues around uh, generative text or images 
are really in the context of an erosion of creators' rights, um, which has certainly happened due to kind of non-AI factors. Um, there was a 2019 survey by, I think, the Authors Guild of America that said, you know, even pre the widespread use of chat GPT, authors' earnings had gone down over the last the previous decade by 42%, so nearly 50%, that's really shocking. And it was absolutely nothing to do with AI, it was, a lot of it was to do with um, Amazon and uh, the squeezing of publishers and the publishers squeezing of authors passing this on. Um, the same in music. As well. Yes, so, you know, these things have happened in a context which we can't blame AI for this and uh, obviously we don't, we don't want AI to be governed by those same principles. So it's a question of really sorting out artists and writers' rights across the board, not just with regard to AI. And that sounds like a very good job for us all to do when we finish up here. That seems like a good place to leave things. I'd like to thank our panel, Joanna Walsh, Leo Butler, and Jennifer O'Mara, and of course, Peter Power for the reading. Culture File will be back on your radio next Saturday tea time on RTE Lyric FM and via podcast. Till then, bye now.